Well, welcome guests. Uh, my name's Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are thankful to have you. And um, as one person commented earlier, it's like a, 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 a youth convention. And I get to be a youth minister again. And we have so many young people here. And we're very thankful um, to have you. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with our church, we uh, preach, I preach, and our elders preach verse by verse through the Bible. And so we are currently in a study in 1 Corinthians, and so that's where we're going to be today. Trent read that for us, and I'm just going to deal with three verses today um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to think about the seriousness of these words. The words, I do. The words, you are hired, or you are fired, or you are under arrest. You don't want people to use those words lightly. You don't want people to joke about those words. You want to understand the seriousness of those words as they are spoken. I know that if um, any of these words were used uh, jokingly, um, it would cause panic. We'd break out into sweats. Um, and it would be disturbing to us. I want to start off this afternoon with my testimony. Because as a kid growing up, I grew up in a, a, a Baptist church. Uh, for as long as I remember, we were in church. And I made what people call a profession of faith. In our church setting, I walked an aisle and I prayed a prayer and for many years was involved in church thinking that I was a Christian because I had gone through these steps. When I got to college at the University of Memphis to study finance and be a banker and make lots of money, because that's what you do when you work at a bank, you make lots of money. That's a joke. Um, the Lord showed me through an experience in college that what I thought I believed, I really did not believe. In other words, the confession of my mouth didn't connect with or match up with the belief in my heart. And so what the Lord began to do is show me that although a person can say with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, just like a person can say, I do, it doesn't mean that they mean that in their heart. And in the same way, the Lord re showing me these things helped me see that I needed a true relationship with Jesus. And through a course of events, He helped me see my sin. He helped me understand that my sin was offense against the Holy God. And that the only way for me to be forgiven and to enjoy the blessings of salvation and the satisfaction in Him would be to fully and completely surrender my life to Him. That's exactly what the phrase means, Jesus is Lord. Now, if we're being honest, in our culture today and throughout the ages, people have always or often wanted Jesus to be Savior, but not Lord. It's easy for us to want Jesus to save us from our sins. Who doesn't want to be rescued from a catastrophe? It would be easy for us to say that. It doesn't take a lot of effort on our parts. 
But when we consider the phrase, Jesus is Lord, we are now saying something completely different because now we are having to submit ourselves to some form of rule or authority or reign over us. And that is the difference of a true biblical belief and practice in Jesus and one that is false. I grew up as a fake Christian until he saved me in college. Today I want to talk to you today from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because these three verses help us see what I call the greatest spiritual gift that we could ever receive. Okay? And I'm going to explain that. The greatest spiritual gift that we could ever receive. Now let me, let me bring you up to speed. We've been studying 1 Corinthians for a long time. Paul writes this letter. The Apostle Paul, leader in the early church, writes these, this letter to the church in Corinth. And he's writing this letter in response to a lot of different problems in the church. If you've been a part of churches before, you understand churches have problems. If you've ever found a church without problems, then you're really actually not in a church. You know, I don't know what you're in. All church has problems. You will always find that in the reality of church because we are sinful people. And Paul is dealing with sinful people in the church that are putting their hope and trust in Jesus for His grace and His mercy. But he's helping them, helping them understand these issues. And as we go through the letter, and I'm not going to take you through the letter, but as he goes through the letter, he's dealing with different issues that have risen up in this church, and he's helping them understand how to deal with them biblically. This is what he gets to in chapter 12. The church in Corinth had a problem with abusing what are called spiritual gifts. These are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives all believers in Jesus so that they may use these gifts to serve and edify the church, to build the church up, okay? So when you hear the word spiritual gifts, these are not given to everybody. These are given to people that when they put their trust in Christ, Christ says, I'm going to not only bless you, but I'm going to use you for the betterment of my people, the church. And so that's what these gifts are. Well, some of the gifts that were given to the church... In Corinth, people were abusing them. What did I just say about the church? It's sinful. People have problems. We take things out of context. We take things out of uh, the, the, the prescribed uh, practice. And we go rather to the right or to the left all the time. You can probably understand. And so Paul is going to, for the next two chapters in this letter, deal with all these different spiritual gifts. We're not even going to get there today. What I want you to understand is, what is the greatest spiritual gift that you can ever receive? And this is what Paul says. Let me read it again. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed or accursed, and no one says... That Jesus, no one, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what I want you to understand today. The greatest gift that you and I can receive from God, or more particularly from the Holy Spirit, is the gift of faith. 
Or more importantly, we could say our confession of faith. And I'm going to explain to you through these verses what Paul is doing and why we need to understand this. This is one of the most pivotal things you should ever hear in a church. Paul wants you to understand, first of all, your natural confession of faith. Paul's laying out for them that if you're going to understand all these different spiritual gifts, we need to start at the foundation and the beginning. And the beginning is who you used to be before Christ and who you are now in Christ and how you got there. That's the the basics. Who you are before Christ and how you got there in Christ Jesus. And so he begins and says, basically, I want you to be very clear. I want there to be understanding, understand and know these things. Number one, what is your natural confession of faith? Well, Paul tells them, you know, in verse two, that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. That's an important sentence for us. Because what Paul is doing is he is explaining to the Corinthians their life before Christ. What he's telling us is that all people before Jesus saves them are living in a state of sinfulness. That sinfulness leads to three things, or is in, the components of that sinfulness is three particular things that I want to explain to you today. Number one, and it's bondage. Our sinfulness is bondage. Secondly, it's hostility. Hostility. And third, and finally, it's two words that mean the same thing, deadness or blindness. Okay? Three things. Bondage, hostility, deadness, or blindness. I know that's really four, but that's the last one is A and B, okay? The reason I call this our natural confession of faith is because this is what everyone in the world believes about what we are believing in. Our natural confession of faith is based upon who we are in the natural sense, who we were born as. Paul tells us, you were led astray to mute idols as pagans. The word pagan there literally means Gentiles or people outside of Christ. This is how Paul would describe people who had not given their life to Christ. In this world, they were without God. And what were they doing? They were being led astray. That, literally, that word literally gives us the mental picture of someone that's in handcuffs being carted off by some form of officers or something. Completely without control, in bondage, on the way to some form of punishment or execution. And this is what Paul is teaching them. This was your former life. My former life, your former life before Christ is a life of bondage. Titus chapter 3 verse 3 tells us that once you were, fooling, you were fooling yourselves, you were disobedient, you were deceived, you were enslaved to various lusts and passions or pleasures, spending our time in malice and envy, hateful and hating others. Paul's describing our captivity. The, the nature of sin, friends, is that we are We are not just desirous of those things of the world. 
We're not just desirous of those things that oppose God. We are enslaved to them. And you understand this because when you fall into that, what happens? The slippery slope of wanting more and more. The idea of addiction. That we can't have enough. It's a, it's a lust that it's never satisfied. This is the human nature. And we know it's the human nature because in Genesis 3, we're reminded that when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, everyone born after Adam and Eve coming from Adam and Eve's line were born into sin. So every one of us, one of my favorite preachers, reminds us that in those cute moments of our children being young, we're like, oh, this precious little angel, he's so cute, he can never do anything wrong. My, one of my favorite preachers says, no, that's a demon in a diaper. You know what I'm talking about. A demon in a diaper. Crying out to be satisfied. Not just with the, the natural elements of nutrition and food. Give me that toy. I don't want to wear that diaper. You understand what I mean? It's the natural inclination to please ourselves. And so our natural confession of faith is an allegiance to self. I will do what I'm going to do that pleases myself. I'm going to seek my best interests, and I'm not going to turn away or turn to something that says, no, I want you to turn from selfish desire and turn from selfish ambition. I want to seek those things. That is the natural confession of faith. And friends, if we're honest and we look in the mirror, we are in bondage to that. We can't get enough. We cannot get enough. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a few verses earlier, as he relates to pagans being led to mute idols, he helps them understand that idols were not just like these statues that you would see that the, the, the Romans and the Greeks would pray to, but that those statues represented more than just, um, uh, I guess, a religious practice. What it was, was it was worshiping demons. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he reminds them that all false religion is rooted not in just some other opportunity to find God. It is rooted in demonic activity. It is the very plan and purpose of Satan himself to distract us from the worship of the one true God to the worship of whatever else is a substitute. And guess what the world has done throughout history? Always tried to find a substitute for the one true God. In every way and fashion. What did God design? Let's find a substitute for that. God created marriage. Let's find a substitute. God created the way the family is structured. Let's find a substitute. And this is what God is is seeking to, to fight against in His Word. Is that substitutes will never satisfy Substitutes will never be enough. They will always leave you wanting more. And so the natural confession of faith is first bondage. Secondly, it's... Excuse me. Secondly, it is blindness or deadness. Not only is it captivity that we are bound to sin, but we are blind and dead to sin. The Bible tells us That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In Ephesians chapter 2, is one of the great chapters of the Bible, we're reminded by the Apostle Paul 
that again in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, we were who formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, were by nature children of wrath. That means that God's judgment before Christ was to fall on us. But, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love, which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. This is the greatest revelation of the Bible, is that deadness is inability. Deadness is not decision-making. Deadness is deadness. And the Bible says that our sin causes us to be dead to God. We are not indifferent to God. We are dead to Him. There is a separation because of sin. And what Paul, say, or what Paul says in Ephesians is that the greatest miracle that anybody can receive is that we are made alive. We go from dead, spiritually separated from God because of sin to being made alive. But for, for us to be made alive, we first have to understand that we're dead. Spiritually disconnected. And finally... Not only in captivity and blindness and deadness, but we are in a hostility. Hostility. This is probably the biggest uh, moment of understanding for me. Because I thought that when, when I came to understand I didn't believe in Christ, I went on a journey. I went on a journey of studying other religions and came to understand that Christianity was worth my practice and my study and my love because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the victory. And because He rose from the dead, He has done what nobody else throughout history and all of the other religions of the world promise you. Victory in Christ. But what I came to understand before that revelation was this. Well, if I don't follow God, I'm just in neutrality with Him. If I don't follow God, that doesn't mean I'm His enemy. It just means that I'm just kind of in a deciding lane, you know? It's like the turning lane. You're not really driving fast down the road. You're just trying to figure things out. Folks, there is no turning lane in your spiritual life. You are rather a follower of Christ, or as the Bible tells us, an enemy of God. Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates His own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember the word sinners. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Remember the word enemies. Paul just tells us sinners equals enemies. So we're in opposition to God. So our natural confession, our natural confession before Christ is serve me, please me, let me have my desires met, let me have my lusts fulfilled. If that means that I'm an enemy of God, that's fine. Because as Billy Joel says, I don't care what you say anymore about my life, it's my life, leave me alone. Now that song I don't think was written to the Lord, but it, it does have a little ring to it, right? 
I don't care what you say about my life. Leave me alone. That is the mantra. That is the motto of the natural confession of faith. So Paul says, listen, before Christ, you were led away to these demonic evil desires. The sinful nature leads you to practice demonic things. You don't realize you're practicing these things, but you're giving in to a worldview that is fueled by demons and Satan himself who are in opposition to a holy God and all that He has created. Bondage, captivity, blindness, and deadness. And so now we get to the good news. The beauty of this passage. Verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is again dealing with the importance of this confession and what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the church. And what he wants them to see and understand is that the reality is for us to genuinely believe in Jesus and trust Him, we are saying Jesus is Lord because we are confessing an already submitted heart within us. I submit to Christ. I submit to Him as my King. I submit to Him as my ruler so that when He tells me and how He calls me to live, I will live. And what He calls me to do, I will do. And what He tells me to turn away from, I will turn away from. Why? Because it's the whole idea of submission. It's the whole idea of authority. And the the supernatural gift or the, the special gift of the Holy Spirit is that because you and I are dead before Christ... Don't miss this. Because you and I are dead before Christ, the Holy Spirit has to awaken us so that we might believe. That's what He does. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is empowering you to believe and trust in Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking if you grew up in the church. Now, Pastor, wait a minute. You're telling me that I walked down the aisle and I prayed this prayer and I confessed to Jesus that I want Him to be my Lord and Savior. You're telling me that I didn't do that? Well, no, you were realistically and physically doing that. But what you could not see and what you could not understand is that you had no ability to do that if the Holy Spirit had not come in in front of you and led you down the aisle and empowered you to say those words and mean them. Now, you can come every day and say them and not mean them. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are made alive in Christ and you are allowed and given the gifts to say those very words because you are transformed. This is what the Bible tells us about new life in Christ. This is Paul's point. He says, look guys, there's going to be problems I'm about to deal with in the church. And so let me, let me just get us on a, on a ground level here and remind us what the Holy Spirit is gifting us to do and understand. And that is to speak the true and similar words with all of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. We all should say these same words, Jesus is Lord and mean them. Because without them, as Paul said in Romans, we will be children of His wrath. Let me, hold, let me ask you to hold your place there and go to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2. To solidify this truth and this understanding that the greatest spiritual gift you can receive is the gift of faith, your confession of faith, that Jesus is Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. They're probably going to be up on the screen as well. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We read that passage and we think, yes, salvation is the gift of God. But that's not the structure of that passage. Because the word it is preceded by the word faith. Faith is the gift of God. It's the whole comparison. Faith is the gift of God. Faith in Christ to believe and trust in Him. Why? Because it's not of yourselves. So no, you did not have the power and the ability and the foresight and the understanding to walk the aisle and trust in Jesus if He had not first empowered you to do so in your deadness and made you alive by His grace. And folks, this is to celebrate. This is the reminder that He takes weakness and He glorifies Himself and people who are undeserving of His grace. This is how He glorifies Himself. That you don't have to come all dolled up spiritually and dressed up spiritually. You come broken and battered to the feet of Jesus and He says, I'm going to save you based upon My grace. And I'm going to give you the power to believe and trust in Me. Not because you have to fix yourself up on the way down the aisle, because I've already fixed you up in Myself. By My power. By My righteousness. So that it's all on me, it's not on you. Faith is the gift of God. Not a result of your works, not a result of your merit, because if it was based on your merit, you would boast. You would brag. You'd be like, man, I walked the aisle at seven. Tinsley came forward to, to our leadership here, not bragging on what Jesus did, or what she did, but bragging on what Jesus did. That He would save her. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know the Apostle Paul's testimony. Notice what he says about his own testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Maybe you can relate to this. Paul, before Christ, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. The Apostle Paul was going around persecuting Christians, throwing them in jail, killing them. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He said, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Jesus. Verse 14 there, Paul is telling us that he was living in unbelief and the grace and the love was given to him by Jesus so that he might believe. That's what he's telling us. That's his testimony. That should be our testimony. Who am I that God would save me? Nobody. He chose to save me. He chose to use me. Because He gets the glory from using those who are weak and frail. So this takes us back then to Paul's comments. Simply this. You have a responsibility to understand that the invitation of the gospel is to believe in Jesus. 
And there is a tension there that we acknowledge. When a preacher says, respond to Jesus, believe and trust in Him, he's not telling you anything wrong because Jesus Himself said that. To receive Him, to trust in Him. But as you do that and as you believe in Him, understand the reality, the, the, the undercurrent of all those things of your belief is a gift from God. Because when you do, you will understand His grace. Because a supernatural confession of faith is that Jesus is Lord. And to be Lord is to rule and reign over you. It's to rule and reign over your life, to, to guide and direct you in all things. I have a friend who belonged to this wayward church with some wayward theology. And they used to believe that to be confirmed in your salvation, to have assurance that you were saved, you had to have this like really emotional experience. And this is rampant in churches. That if you didn't have this broken, weeping, crawling on the carpet experience, then Christ had not saved you. And so this friend of mine, he prays and prays and prays that God would save him. Just hoping that one day he would be so contrite and so broken that he would have such an experience. Now let me ask you something. Where does the desire for this man to be saved come from? If his natural inclination is to defy God then his very desire to be with God, to trust in Christ, to make Jesus his Lord, means not that he needs some emotional experience, but that obviously the Holy Spirit has already given him this desire to believe and trust in Christ. See, the confession, Jesus is Lord, if it's genuine in your heart and in your life, this is a moment of celebration, of spiritual confidence. Knowing that if Jesus is your Lord, then friend, you are saved. Then you have confidence in that. I can't tell you you're saved because I don't look at your heart, but if you evaluate yourself and you know that Jesus is your Lord and your only hope is in Him and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus upon the cross, then trust that and know that Jesus has saved you. Because your confession is important. Because it was wrought by the Holy Spirit. And so this is encouraging truth for us today. If you know Christ, if you follow Him, be encouraged. I love the passage in 1 John. It says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I was a youth pastor for over 10 years and I remember having an innumerable amount of conversations with young people who are doubting their salvation. Am I truly saved? Do I truly know Christ? And so the simple question that I have is, Jesus, your Lord. Well, yeah, when I was seven years old, I, wa- I said, that's not what I asked you. I didn't ask you, did you one time make Jesus your Lord? Which, by the way, you don't make Jesus your Lord. He is Lord. Okay? I said, I didn't ask you that. I said, is Jesus your Lord? That's what you need to ask yourself today. Does He rule and reign over your life? Do you submit to Him? 
Do you have a relationship with Him? Because if He is not your Lord today, He is not your Lord. Because you don't lose that. He didn't forget you or leave you behind as some lost sheep. If He is or has been your Lord, He continues through all eternity to be your Lord. And so you find confidence in that. These things I have written so that you may know and find assurance. But secondly, this should encourage us for the lostness in our life. The people in our world that don't know Christ. I don't make it a secret in this church that I have a daughter that doesn't love Jesus. She's grown. She's living like the world. She has a natural confession of faith. She is seeking herself. But you know what I can't do? I can't save her. I can't give her faith. I can't make her believe. I point her to Jesus. I tell her who Jesus is. I remind her of her sin and her need for Christ. And I leave it at that. And so many of us that plead and and beg God to save this person in our life and this person in our life, we must understand and know the reality that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the confession of faith. That when the Spirit is at work in the lives of a person, they will confess Jesus as Lord. It's His power. The same power that He created the world and everything in it is the same power that possesses someone so that they may desire and submit to the Lordship of Jesus. So find hope in that. It fashions our prayers. It guides our prayers to say, Lord, I pray so-and-so would be given the faith to believe. Use me to be faithful to take them the message, but I trust in your plan and purpose to draw them to yourself and give them faith and trust in you. And so I want to ask you today, is Jesus your Lord? Is He your King? If not, clearly the Bible says, you are children of wrath, you will face the judgment of God, and that is a terrible thing to consider. And there's nothing in the world that this, there's nothing in this world that is being offered to you that will satisfy in the face of judgment. No safety net, no security blanket, nothing. And so I beg and plead you to trust in Jesus today. Doesn't matter what you've done. Paul was a persecutor. Paul was an aggressor of the church. Paul rebuked and killed the very people that followed Jesus. Your life's not that bad. And God's grace in Christ alone abounds to the chiefest of sinners. Trust in Him. And if you're a believer today, find hope in Christ and what He has done. He has given you this confession. He has made you understand and believe that He is the only way of salvation. That His perfect righteousness is sufficient and enough for you to be cleansed and healed and rescued and perfected in Him. Find hope in that. And know that one day when Christ returns, you will be united with Him and we will be in his, under His Lordship for all eternity. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray.